cornerstone was set the entire building was fitted around that cornerstone it was the guiding principle if that cornerstone was set wrongly the entire building is out of whack and that's so true that's why Jesus is called the chief cornerstone because the reality is is that if Jesus is the Lord and center of your life as you build your life your life will be built in a way that is logical practical and livable Joseph went through a lot of trauma during his life, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned, hated by his brothers. It would have been easy for him to just fade away into mediocrity, but he didn't. As Pastor Daniel shares the final words of prophecy that Jacob spoke over Joseph, the reason for Joseph's success will become clear. Learning the secret of Joseph's prosperity, you'll discover principles that will help you as you live out your life. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, as he begins his message, Setting the Stage. All right, let's open up to the book of Genesis. As we finish the book of Genesis, it's only taken us about nine months. It's funny, I... uh, The last time I taught the book of Genesis, it took me more than two years, so they gave me a speedy car this time, so. But it's been a great series, hasn't it, as we've been studying. We began with the origin series, chapters 1 through 11, where we realistically saw the origin of everything except for the origin of God himself. Then we went into the patriarch series, where the focus was on Abraham Isaac and Jacob, the three patriarchs. And now we conclude our brother series where the focus, although Jacob is still alive and we're going to see Jacob's passing, the focus has been upon Jacob's sons. And so we broke off right in the middle of chapter 49, this prophecy was Jacob is blessing and prophesying over his sons. And we broke off At verse 20, we ended with verse 21 where we saw the prophecy about Naphtali. And now in verse 22, picking up Genesis 49, verse 22, it says this. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hill. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Now, notice this prophecy is broken pretty much into two halves. 
where you have verses 22 to 24, which is retrospective, which looks back on what already happened, and then 25 and following is the present and the future. The focus is that Joseph, although fruitful, is somebody who has struggled, where there's been a lot of opposition. Look at how it begins. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well, his branches run over the wall. Now, don't miss the fact that the idea of fruitful, it's a play on words with his son's name, Ephraim, which means fruitful. So he's saying that Joseph's line has been fruitful. And when you think about the word picture that's used here, he's by a well, which means there's water. Don't forget they're in Egypt in the middle of a bad famine. You know, it's an arid climate. And so by saying, hey, you're a fruitful plant and you're by a well, that's a good thing for a plant. It's access to water. But not only that, it goes on to say that his branches run over a wall. So it just speaks of absolute fruitfulness, great fertility. Everything's going great. But then in verse 23, we start seeing the hatred. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him, but his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now notice this. This is speaking poetically about what happened with his brothers. And we've been studying this through this entire series, right? Through brothers. We saw how Joseph's brothers struggled with him. And there is an important thing to bring out of this. And that's that if you are fruitful, often you will be despised. You would think that when you are spiritually fruitful, that everyone's just going to think that that's a great thing. But oftentimes, the people who God is using, the people who God is blessing, often has the most opposition. Sometimes the opposition is on the inside. And when we get to the book of Exodus, we're going to see Moses, who God is using powerfully. He has all this internal opposition that's happening. Sometimes the opposition comes from the outside. And the reality for us is to not spend as much time being concerned about how people feel about us, but what is God doing in us? You'll never find someone who God has used mightily who there hasn't been opposition against. To quote Einstein, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. He got that just from reading the Bible. Find one person who graced the pages of your Bible who God used in a powerful way, who didn't have pushback. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is having issues with the religious establishment of his day. God used Moses in a powerful way, and there's power struggles in the midst of it. So don't miss that if you are fruitful, you will also be despised. And that could be discouraging, right? When you really start seeking the Lord, you start saying, God, I really want to follow you. And you think, I'm following the Lord. This is going to go great. And all of a sudden, you have all these issues. All these people have issues with you. But fruitfulness is not always going to equate to everyone being happy. Joseph was fruitful, but there was a lot of pushback. But notice, although Joseph was fruitful and although there was opposition, Joseph was protected by God. Notice that, verse 24. But his bow remained in his strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I like this. 
that even though there was opposition, Joseph was still made strong by the Lord. Notice the different names of God, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, and the stone of Israel. So first we have God being mighty, and we've talked about that, that God is mighty, all-powerful. But then you have the shepherd. And it makes you think when Jesus in John chapter 15 said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, my sheep hear my voice. It reminds you of Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? Shepherd, I shall not want. Right here, Jacob is saying over Joseph, listen, the shepherd is taking care of you. God is a shepherd. He looks out for his sheep. He protects his sheep. And not only that, I love this, the stone of Israel. And this is a deep, rich, biblical picture. The idea of the stone. The stone which the builders refused has become the chief cornerstone. Now that's out of the Bible. For a lot of you, you've probably just heard it from a Bob Marley song. But Bob got it from the Bible. Where Jesus is the rock. That chief cornerstone. And if you read about the architecture of that time, the cornerstone was set. When the cornerstone was set, the entire building was fitted around that cornerstone. It was the guiding principle. If that cornerstone was set wrongly, the entire building is out of whack. And that's so true. That's why Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. Because the reality is, is that if Jesus is the Lord and center of your life, as you build your life, your life will be built in a way that is logical, practical, and livable. But if Jesus is not set as the cornerstone, maybe there's something else as the cornerstone. When you build your house, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, that he who builds his house on the rock, no matter what happens, that house will stand. Sure, it might be weather beaten, but it will stand. But if you choose to build your house on the sand with a different cornerstone, one that is not worthy to be a cornerstone, when the wind and wave comes, that house is going to fall. You know, it's interesting. I believe it's in Chicago. There's this beautiful building. It's meant to be like a nod to postmodern architecture where there's windows, but there's no views. There's doors that don't go anywhere, like pure postmodernism. But what's interesting is it's really cool. It's all postmodern. It, it makes no sense. And they say, oh, this is a feat of postmodern architecture. But you know what's amazing about it? They still built it on a perfectly good foundation. So sure, it's postmodern. Windows don't open. They don't have views. Doors go to nowhere. It's, there's no right angles or whatever. It's really cool. But they still built it on old school, good, strong foundation. Because you can build the weirdest building in the world, but if you don't build it on a good foundation, guess what? It's not going to stand. Everybody knows that a good building needs a strong foundation. Everybody knows that. And that's why the stone of Israel, it speaks of Jesus, who's that chief cornerstone. And Jesus is the person who we need to build our lives upon. If Jesus is not rightly fitted as the guiding principle of your life, as you build, things are just going to be out of whack. But as Jesus is that centerpiece, then a house can be built that will be sustainable. Now, going on in verse 25, by the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father having excelled the blessings 
of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. What's the common theme in those verses? Blessings, right? I hope you didn't miss that. Over and over again. There's like seven blessings in those sentences. So what does it say is that although there was opposition, Joseph's lot is that of blessing. That even though there was opposition, Joseph receives a place and a prominence of blessing, exceeding blessings. And what you'll find is that as you watch the history of Israel, and I've said this before, that Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, when you get to the prophetic books, when they talk about the 10 northern tribes, they always call it Ephraim. Why? Because out of all the 10 northern tribes, Ephraim was the largest. Far exceeded all the others in population, the amount of land they got, the whole thing. So Joseph receives a place of great blessing, exceeding blessing. Now, as we move on, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. Wow. I mean, how different is that, that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, a devouring wolf? This describes Benjamin as a tribe that is violent in spirit. And if you go on and you read through your Bible, you find things like the tribe of Benjamin. They waged war with all the tribes on account of the wickedness of Gibeah. You can read that in Judges chapter 20. On other occasions, it had distinguished archers and slingers from this tribe. So they were a tribe of war. The judge Ehud and Saul were both from this tribe. And if you read the history, both Ehud and Saul didn't have great goes at it. So the idea here is that Benjamin is functioning like a devourer, that it speaks of violence. And sure enough, that is exactly what happens with the tribe of Benjamin. All through the scriptures, Benjamin is always seen in a warlike capacity. Now, going on, verse 28. All of these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me and my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heath. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So notice this. The last act of Jacob's life was to bless his sons. Now, you know I'm going to make an application with that, right? Like, how can you not? Like, it's just like sitting there being like, just apply this. Brothers and sisters, be a blessing. Live your lives to be a blessing to the people around you. So if you're at school, bless the people around you. Why? Because you can. Because God has blessed you, so just bless them. If you're at your job, don't do your job just unto your boss. 
Do your job as unto the Lord. And let your company that you work for get the blessing. If you're married, just bless your spouse. If you have kids, bless your kids. Everyone you meet, just bless them. Because we learn from Jacob, I mean, Jacob's last act is to bless his sons. Pronounce God's blessing. Now, of course, we went through it, and prophetically, not all of it seemed to be a blessing, but he did bless them. And then notice, he gives them his final wishes, and his final wishes have everything to do with he does not want to be buried in Egypt. He keeps going back to the cave of Machpelah, purchased by Abraham, Genesis chapter 23, Sarah was buried there, Genesis 23. Abraham was buried there, Genesis 25. Isaac was buried there, Genesis 35. Rebekah was buried there. We just found that out. And then Leah as well. So don't forget, remember when we started, we said that the book of Genesis and the whole Bible is about three things, right? God, the people, and the land, right? We've been seeing God running through it. Now we see that God has called the people to himself Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Jacob's 12 sons. But the only piece of the land that the patriarchs owned was just this cave. That's all they owned, a burial place. So as you leave the book of Genesis, you find out that Jacob, although he has not seen the fulfillment of God's promise of a land, his heart is there. He wants to be buried in that same place. The one piece of property they own in the promised land He's like, don't bury me here, bury me there. I want to be with my grandfather, my father, my wife, all these people. That's the one place we have. And don't miss the reality that from Genesis to Revelation, God, the people in the land keep coming up. Because the book of Exodus, as we get into it in the coming weeks, you're going to find that God is going to take them from Egypt and talk to them about going to the promised land that he promised to them. Now, sure, they're not going to actually step foot in the promised land, as a whole group until the book of Joshua. But God has promised them a land and he's going to fulfill it. Now, on that point, if you're reading deep into the news, we need to pray for what's going on in Israel right now. The Bible commands that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. Because the news is not really sharing the news of what's going on there. It's kind of buried behind a whole lot of stuff. If you're on the internet, on Twitter, there's people who are there and they're talking about the number of rockets that are going off there and people are getting hurt. So we need to pray for the peace of Israel because God has promised a people and a land. Now, what's interesting, if you get to the end of the book of Revelation, what do you find? That God brings a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. It's fascinating. So although we get an earthly possession, our ultimate possession is a heavenly one. But we should still pray for God, the people, and the land. So Jacob's final wishes, please don't bury me here. I want to be buried in the promised land. And notice, verse 33, it says this. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. You know what I love about this? The Bible, it's God's word, right? Notice that he's done speaking He puts his feet up under the covers and he breathes his last and he goes to be gathered with his people. You know what I love about that? I realize that death is scary. Why? Because we're not there yet. And all we have recollection of is this life. But one of the hopes 
for the people of God is that we'll be gathered together to our people. And I don't know about you, I'm not looking to get to heaven one day quicker than God has ordained it for me. I want to be here for a long time. I want to see what I look like with long gray dreads, but like bald on top. I want to see that. That's going to be high comedy. But you know what? When it is time for me to go home, I'm going to get to meet the Apostle Paul. I'm going to get to meet great missionaries that I've read about. I mean, I want to ask Patrick what it was like sharing the gospel with the Druids. Like, I want to know what that was like. I want to talk to Jim Elliott and say, hey, Jim, you know, what was it like on that beach with the Aka Indians? I want to meet Wycliffe, who was running for his life, just trying to translate the Bible into the common language. I want to meet Martin Luther and see if he's still kind of crusty in heaven. Because if you read the writings of Martin Luther, Martin Luther says some crazy things. I want to meet all these people. I can't wait to, that's going to be a glorious reunion. You know, when the Lord returns or when he takes us home to be with him, that's going to be a wild time. Every tribe, nation, and tongue together, worshiping God as one people. Right now, we meet in all these churches, language barriers, generational barriers, and then that's all going to be gone. There's just going to be the Lord and his people. Don't miss that, that when this life is passed, we're going to be gathered to the people. We're going to be among the company of the faithful, not because of our own faithfulness, because we're not, but because of the faithfulness of the Lord. Even when we are faithless, it says he is faithful. Now, going on to chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Adat, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Adat, they said, it is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Misraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Jesus is real. This idea of being fruitful that Pastor Daniel taught about today is very different than the concept of being successful in the eyes of the world. Someone like Mother Teresa, although she was recognized by many for her generous works, would not be considered successful in the boardrooms of the world. 
She was seeking to be fruitful in the eyes of God. That is the goal that God wants us to be shooting for. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I'm so stoked you're a listener of Jesus' Real Radio, and I know Jesus has amazing plans for you. I'd love to hear the story of how God's working in your life. Give us a call here at Jesus' Real Radio at 360-256-4655 or email me at real at danielfusco.com. We're so glad we can be a part of your life through the ministry of Jesus' Real Radio. Would you like to be a part of what we're doing? We would like to ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this program. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be used to reach people with the gospel message. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Just click on Give. Thank you for partnering with us. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time as Pastor Daniel will continue his teaching, Setting the Stage. Jacob will finish the blessings of his sons with his youngest, Benjamin. Pastor Daniel will talk about Jacob's final wishes and his death. You're going to hear about the faith of Jacob and how even as he's dying, what he tells his sons to do is an indicator of his trust in God to keep the promise God made to his ancestors. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.